Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. I pulled out of Fort Myers with 500 highs. Crossed the Tappan Zee Bridge, they were all still alive. From Georgia to Jersey, from pumpkins to trees. I'm the bringer of stingers, I'm still trucking bees. Trucking bees, trucking bees, as nice as you please. Just hauling some pollen like a portable sneeze. Give me white pills and coffee and hand me my keys. And I'll drive all night long just as buzzed as my bees. I can drive through the daylight with no bathroom stops. Those farmers in Maine, they need me for their crops. From berries to almonds, from peppers to peas. A collector of nectar, I'm still trucking bees. Trucking bees. Trucking bees, as nice as you please. Just hauling some pollen like a portable sneeze. Give me white pills and coffee and hand me my keys. And I'll drive all night long just as buzzed as my bees. That's our bee trucking song, which I, I think we actually neglected to name, but Kayon uh, and I wrote that today because, in fact, that's part of the uh, topic of the show today. We're going to look at a lot of things related to bees. Not our first bee show uh, by any means. Uh, but So some of this will be an update. But there's a lot of brand new territory for us to uh, uncover, including what was referenced in that song, which is the number of bees that are simply moved around the country for various reasons. We're going to explain that to you in just a second. Um, we're also uh, going to tell you a little bit about apotherapy. That'll be a little bit later in the show. Apotherapy is the use of various bee products uh, to, uh, to accomplish medical ends, um, probably the, the thing that you think of. Uh, if you think at all about apotherapy or if you've ever heard of it, is bee ven- venom therapy, where the actual venom of the bee uh, is used uh, to stimulate the body in certain ways. So you'll hear about that. You'll hear a little bit, too, about the importance of bees in the Connecticut economy. But uh, and, and it's sort of interesting because bees, it, they kind of work two ways. They work as a local economy and part of our local ecosystem, but they're also just because of the way life is these days, um, trucked around uh, to a lot of different places. I should also say, as we go along here today, um, you're welcome to call in. 860-275-7266. And we've got some great guests for you today. We're missing one beekeeper right now. If anybody can find John Weil, the owner of Weil Farms in North Stonington, Connecticut, remind him he's supposed to be on the show today to talk about his experiences in the beekeeping business and trucking his bees around. But we do have some uh, great guests in studio and by phone for you. Oh, and I almost forgot. Uh, Also later in the show, we're going to talk to a researcher at Cornell who decided to try to figure out, using his own body, what's the worst place to get stung? Uh, And he did it very systematically. (laughs) We'll explain that to you. It's the kind of research not very many people would do. Let me tell you who's who's here in studio right now. In just a minute or two, you'll meet Alan Lorenzo. He's a traveling bee venom therapist who runs Bee Well Therapy. 
and he's a member of the American Apitherapy Society. Also in studio is Al Avitabile. He is an emeritus professor of ecology and evolutionary biology at UConn's Waterbury campus, a researcher and a beekeeper, past president of the Connecticut Beekeepers Association. Uh, and on the phone in just a second, we'll talk to Raleigh Hannon, the owner of Hannon Honey, which provides pollination services to orchards and vegetable farms, produces wildflower uh, honey, and raises queens. Queen bees, that is. Uh, all right. So, um, Al Avitabli, I'm going to go to you first. Uh, you heard that incredibly stirring song. You were moved close to tears, uh, I could tell. Um, but this this is a reality, right? I mean, bees don't, don't sit on somebody's farm these days. Bees get, Connecticut bees get trucked all over the place, right? Connecticut bees and bees throughout the country. Mm. Actually, uh, right now, uh, there are approximately 2,000 excuse me, 2,400,000 colonies, and uh, two-thirds of them are trucked across the country every year. And, and why is that necessary? In other words, I think we think of farms, and farms have bees, and the bees should be right there. Why, why aren't there enough bees right there in Georgia or right there in, in California for the almond crop? Uh, there aren't enough. For instance, <clears throat> the, the almond crop, the almond orchards cover 760,000 acres, and there's no way uh, you can have um, bees covering that area. In addition, once the almonds are finished blooming, there are there's nothing else, no other forage for the bees. So the bees literally are trucked in, stay there about a month, and trucked back out. So uh, there is there, and then with mono agriculture, uh, you have huge tracts of land with only let's say soybeans. And the only way they can get pollinated is to bring the bees into the uh, these tracts of land. Okay, we want to know more about that. Raleigh Hannon, uh, as I said, joining us from Hannon Honey, which provides pollination services to orchards and vegetable farms. So, Raleigh Hannon, um, how do the bees feel about this? I mean, do bees just want to sit right where they are? Do they? Is there a way to tell whether or not uh, this is sort of an acceptable life for them, getting up on trucks and going different places? Uh, they don't usually know. I mean, yeah, they do know that. But they don't, I mean, they get upset, but they don't, they're not really mad. I mean, it's the way of life. I mean, I worked uh, for migratory. I've done, I've done this route across the country, and I actually just brought my semi-loaded bees up out of North, uh, South Carolina on the Georgia border, actually, last Wednesday. So um, it is what it is. Um, you just, you, you put them on the truck in the evening when they're all back in the hive, and you drive for a few hours, catch catch some uh, sleep, and then you drive all day. So just to keep the air over the bees and keep them cool. Yeah, I, um, I, I thought I read that somewhere. I just want to. Can we just pause on that one for a second? Because I, I in some of the reading I did for the show, uh, I thought I did read that. Really, in some cases, you almost can't stop during the day, right? Yeah, yeah, you can't stop unless uh, if it's raining or cool. Like if it's uh, if it's like fifty degrees outside, they'll. I mean, they'll they'll hang in the hives. But it, like if you have a breakdown. There's two people you call when you break a truck down. First is the fire department, and the second is the tow truck. The first one is the fire department because you want to uh, see if they can hose the load down because the bees create so much heat that people don't realize that they'll throw so much heat off off the beehives that um, if you don't cool them down, the the tractor trailer can get so hot that you'll actually see um, wax melting and coming out of the beehives. Wow, I hadn't even thought about it that way. And so does that mean for the trucker, for the person who's doing this, I mean, you, you almost can't stop to go, like, to the bathroom during the day? I mean, can you stop at you all? Got, you got a, a few minutes, you know, you can, 
you got to you got to make your uh, your stops quickly. You know, last when I brought mine up, we were able to stop. You know, check the straps, check the tarps, and then you basically keep rolling. I mean, because once if it's 80 degrees outside and you're rolling at 65, 70 miles an hour, which is down south speed limit, you got all that air coming over the bees, which usually is cool. So it actually cools them down. So you got you're not going to do extended periods if you got like. 15-minute stop, 20-minute stop, then hop back in the truck. But a lot of people don't like it <laughs> like it when you stop either because there's always bees that find a hole in the net and, you know, sneak out. Um, uh, uh, Raleigh, just hang on for a second. Al Avitabile, what I'm hearing here, too, is a bee farmer who has a whole set of expertise that probably didn't exist 50, 75 years ago, right? I mean, the whole idea of moving bees around is a relatively modern concept. I would I would agree, um, primarily because as a, uh, agriculture was much more diverse and there were smaller farms and monoagriculture did not exist to the extent it does today. And so, um, uh, so Raleigh, give us a little bit more sense. Well, one thing that does happen occasionally, uh, and it, it always makes the news, is, you know, somebody tips over on the Tappan Zee Bridge or something like that, and, you know, they've got, I, I assume, in some cases, millions of bees get out. I, I assume that's a relatively rare occurrence. Yeah, for how many that get trucked, I mean, you always hear about one truck that flips over in a year, and for, there's about 440 hives on a semi-load, and when they're running the bees for pollination, they're running between forty thousand and sixty thousand hives in a bee, in a bees in a hive. So you start doing some numbers real quick, and there's a lot of lot of bees on that. And the 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 amount of truckloads that get moved through the country, which most people don't realize, but Connecticut. Everybody drives through Connecticut to go to Maine. Right. There's 60,000 hives of bees that are needed for pollination of blueberries in Maine. And they all have to drive through Connecticut. And that 440 hives on a load, you're talking a lot of semi-loads that sneak through Connecticut that, um, they, you know, we, we haven't had a problem, which is good. I mean, you always hear about one one load a year, but there's there's so many hives that are moved that, it's a it's a minuscule of what um, a load you know what happens. Are, are, are there rules? Are there? I mean, I don't. Do you have to pass certain inspections? Or I, I, yeah, I, to, yeah, to 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 actually um, ship bees interstate, um, you have to have uh, your health certificates. They come in and look for diseases in your hives in might or diseases that are transferable from beehives to beehives. So they don't want say, my bees bringing diseases down to South Carolina where other people are and spreading that disease. So it's, um, they look at it and then they give you a health certificate and then usually the paperwork goes ahead of before you go in or you carry it with you and then they inspect them when you, some states do inspect once you hit the ground or some, some usually wait a week. Usually on certain crops, they also inspect for quality of the beehive. So when they're going through the quality look, they're also looking for diseases as well. Mm-hmm. Um, Al Avitabile, one question that I have, too, is, uh, I mean, if we go back 75 years to uh, more diverse farming culture, smaller farms, et cetera, you have bees, therefore, living through a pretty typical season, whatever season is, is whatever set of seasons are, are indigenous to, to the place where they live. Now you've got bees kind of hitting peak 
pollen time, you know, sort of basically chasing the farming seasons around. Does that change the biology of the bee, or is the bee just wired to pollinate anytime you give it a chance? Uh, yes, I think the bee is wired to pollinate because uh, the uh, pollen is the protein for the honeybee. So like us, the two requirements are carbohydrates and proteins. And so as soon as you set a hive down, get it off a semi, open it up so the bees can fly, they immediately uh, move towards flowering plants to get uh, the pollen, which is the protein, and the nectar, which is the carbohydrate. Um, also joining us now, as I uh, promised before, John Wiles joining us. He's owner-operator of Wild Farms in North Stonington, also in the beekeeping business for a long time, 31 years, pollinating uh, fruits and vegetables uh, in Connecticut, New York, and Florida. So, John Weil, um, first of all, how much of the year do you, as a beekeeper, as a pollinator, spend on the road? Well, um, we're, we're kind of in a, in a strange situation, Colin. We uh, started in New England, we started in Connecticut, and about 20 years ago, uh, we started to see such great bee losses, we knew we had to do something. So we decided to set up an operation in Florida where we could send our bees, I used to say, send our bees on vacation for the winter in Florida, and they would summer in the spring and summer in uh, Connecticut. And so we basically do one large move or several large moves uh, just once or twice a year. And then we get them in, into New York and Connecticut, and we do our pollination, and then they're brought back uh, to Florida. And, and when you say you were seeing bee losses, you're not talking about colony collapse disorder, right? You're talking about winter damage to bees? Uh, winter damage, uh, tracheal and varroa mite infections um, that were spreading from state to state and even though um, there was quarantines put on those bees, they still managed to, uh, you know, get through all the states. And so it was. A, uh, I find that the mites uh, provide a weakness to the hives because you never can really. You always end up with one to three percent mite, even if you treat for it. Uh, and so it weakened um, uh, the bees. And since bees aren't um, uh, normally uh, from America, even. They were all brought in. Uh, it was always risky in New England to do beekeeping, and then once bees became weakened by the uh, the mites, it made it that much harder to do beekeeping in New England. Hey, uh, Raleigh Hannon, one question I sort of have, too, is as, as you're moving bees around and you're moving them into different agricultural areas, into different farming areas, is this something you do in close coordination and collaboration with the farmers, or do the farmers just sort of stand back and get out of your way and let your bees do what they have to do? No, I do. It's uh, this time of year, we're on the phone a lot talking to when, when they're ready to bring them in after they get their, their orchards. And you bring them in right when they're like 5% bloom so that they're, you know, something's open and then we drop the bees in real quick. And then it's like a, and then they orchestrate when you're pulling them out. So it's it's pretty, and some some will go around with me, show me where they want them. Some, some, some guys will actually, uh, I'll set the bees in their parking lot and they, they take them out um, with uh, their tractors or machines like that. All my bees are on pallets. I can I can load and unload really quick. Last year I did uh, probably 80 percent of the Connecticut apples, and uh, um, and I basically moved everything in and out within a uh, moved everything into the orchards within a week. Hmm. 
Uh, by the way, if we as we go along here, if you have questions, the number 860-275-7266, 860-275-7266. So Al Avitable, uh, obviously, um, well, first of all, how's Connecticut's overall bee population? Are we, are we up or are we down? Uh, we are up. Uh, basically, uh, amazingly enough, the interest in honeybees has reached all-time highs. Uh, the Connecticut Beekeepers Association had a beekeeping school for beginners in January. 150 people showed up for the school. I think 10 years ago, if you had 10, that would be pretty remarkable. There are approximately um, 5,800 hives in Connecticut and 760 beekeepers. And you might be amazed to know most registered beekeepers are from Greenwich, Connecticut. The highest numbers are in Fairfield County. Um, on the other hand, okay, that's how many beekeepers there are. How, that's how the beekeeping field is doing. How are the bees themselves doing in Connecticut? Uh, uh, actually, fairly okay. Given this rough winter, I'm amazed that I look at hives at different uh, people's th- other beekeepers and they have come through relatively well. Um, I, let me just ask the guys on the phone about this, too. I'll start with you, John Weil. Um, how do you think the overall health of Connecticut bees is these days? Well, um, you know, I have heard some encouraging things in Connecticut, but I've got to say that, you know, I see uh, most of people that I see in the beekeeping business in Connecticut are still reporting, you know, at least 20 to 30 percent winter losses. And, and once again, that's not the same thing as, uh, as CCD, as colony collapse disorder. That's more sort of kind of bee breakage, the normal rate of bee breakage. Well, I, I, I personally think it's a combination of uh, fungic- new fungicides, insecticides, uh, the, the, the bee problems that we've been having, the, the mites, and, and the weather. And uh, now we're starting to see that climate change at least in Florida, is going to make a huge difference, we think, in beekeeping. Um, and, and, Raleigh, how about you? Uh, are you seeing the same things that John Wiles talking about? Yeah, I think, um, and you got to remember that Connecticut, we're a small state, not really ag important when you consider the national scope of, like, Maine blueberries, almonds, you know, Florida citrus. Now, most of the beekeepers in Connecticut, they're, they're hobbyists. They have one, one to five hives in their backyard. There's a handful of us that have more, you know, that are either sideline or, you know, sideline beekeepers. I wouldn't consider anybody in Connecticut a really commercial beekeeper that make a full-time living strictly from the bees. Somebody's usually working off the family farm for insurance or money-wise. So when you bring that, it's there's a lot of backyard beekeepers that, you know, or hobbyists that, you know, they they do a lot of contribute contribute, you know, to the tag industry or to their gardens and stuff like that. And that's kinda of hard to when you start dealing with commercial versus hobbyists, how they're managed for like hobbyists they you know, sometimes they have an endless supply of money what they can put into a beehive. Whereas on the commercial side you can only feed them so much and then you gotta you basically you gotta draw the line. Is it gonna make it or is it gonna die? And you know we can put more bees in it later. So it's it's a fine line to deal with that. All right, uh, we're talking about bees. Our number is eight six zero two seven five seven two six six. That's eight six zero two seven five seven two six six. In just a second, we're gonna take a break. So, but before we leave off. Um, 
the, the, the opening part of our conversation and, and maybe even explore a little bit more the distinction that Raleigh was just making. So, John, uh, before you joined us, Raleigh Hannon was talking a little bit about sort of some of the, the, um, the things you have to learn about transporting bees and, and I mean, telling us some pretty uh, hair-raising stuff about just how hot the load gets when you're transporting bees. Um, maybe you want to share with us also a little bit about the, the learning curve of trucking and hauling bees. What were the things that you had to learn uh, uh, transporting this kind of unusual load around the country? Well, I'll tell you, unfortunately, uh, I started this 31 years ago, and I sort of learned by trial and error. You know, you try to get information, but it, this is a kind of a business. Uh, it's it t- the bees tend to be different in different states, from northern states to southern states. And so I, I sort of learned by trial and error, and we have recently come up with a new way to transport our bees. Uh, it's much more expensive, but we are able to deal with the heat. Because, and I'm sorry I missed the beginning of this, but our phones didn't get hooked up for some reason. But uh, there is tr- when you start to stack, uh, the bees are palletized, and then stacked in tractor-trailer trucks. And when you start to do that, the uh, hive temperature inside the hive gets extremely high. And that has caused a lot of problems um, in, in moving bees long distances. We've come up with a new solution to this problem. It's a little more expensive, but it really works well. And what we're starting to do now is put the bees in refrigerated trucks. And so we'll put them in at night, and we'll put them in the refrigerated trucks, and we'll begin to bring down the temperature slowly. Hello? Yep. Yeah. Uh, uh, slowly, until we get it down to about 40 de- 48 degrees Fahrenheit. And once we get it at that level, the bees... Oh, you get you somebody else trying to call you right now. All right. Oh, I'm- I'm sorry. Actually, you know what? Hang on to that thought uh, for a second, John. We'll get right back to you uh, maybe when you clear up that call. Let me just grab a, a call from Steve. Uh, here's a, yeah, here's Steve on a cell phone. Hi, Steve. Hey, hi. How are you doing today? Thank you very much. Thanks for uh, calling. What's on your mind? Yeah, well, my question is um, I'm just a little, a little curious about do the bees have an opportunity? Does it disturb them and the queen when they're moving around? Do you only move certain hives because are they constantly, you know, the queen laying eggs? Are they able to, uh, you know, carry on with that part of their life? Okay, Raleigh, you might be able to answer that whole question. Sort of the breeding pattern, the breeding cycle of the bees, uh, how much do you have to accommodate that as you move them? Usually, um, usually in the early spring, uh, when I was, uh, I'll, I'll, uh, get to, I'll raise raise queens and introduce them into the hive, and then usually seven seven to twelve days after they they go out on their mating flight. Then after they mate, they start laying eggs. But usually they don't. The queen does not leave unless she swarms. Okay, so she's usually in the hive working. You know, even when they're on the truck, they'll work. There's you know honey, pollen, everything available for them. They might slow down for, you know, a day, just, you know, or two, maybe not lay as much. But she's she's usually continuing laying even on the truck. Mm. And, uh, I mean, you, you lose a few a few bees on it, but on a semi-load, uh, some people use refrigerated, but not too many because they create so much heat. Most everybody in the country nets them. Mm-hmm. And when you net them, you don't put a screen in the entrance. So the bees, 
if they do get warm, they can come out of a hive and cool themselves. Okay. And with that, that's just a natural function of a beehive is to come out up front and they can fan the air through them. And then the way that we have on our pallets is there's plenty of airflow, so they can come out and get fresh air into the hive. So, um, yeah, um, not unlike you know, what anybody else would do. Yeah, go ahead. I'm, I'm sorry. Yeah, I mean, you, you do lose a few on the truck. I mean, it's just, it's, I mean, it's the nature of the beast, I think. I mean, you don't, mm-hmm. you, you'll do have some dead high or some dead bees, but pretty much the highs are, are intact and, uh, you're, they're ready to come off. And, and I've seen them putting bees on the ground in an orchard. I've seen within a half an hour of them actually bringing pollen back to the hives. Hmm. They work fast. Uh, Raleigh, I'm going to put you on hold for just a second. Um, Al Avit, we're going to go to a break in just a second. Al Avitabile, one of the questions I guess a lot of people have is in terms of tr- trucking bees around the country, obviously what you've got are colonies coming into contact with one another. Um, Michael Pollan, in writing about the, 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 fertil- the pollinization process in, um, in California with the almond crops, described it at one point as a, an enormous bee brothel. Uh, you've got all kinds of bees meeting up with other bees. Is there, does science know yet whether there's a risk to the bees simply posed by having so many bees from so many different places? in proximity with one another? Well, I guess a risk is when they put these hives into, the, let's say, the almond orchards, the, um, there's some disorientation. There's no question as they come out for the first time after they've been unloaded, and there is a possibility of drift. Drifting does take place, and if you have some hives that are carrying an excess load of varroa mites, for instance, they could drift in a hive that's fairly clean, and you're just it, 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 there is going to be infection and spreading of diseases. But once again, this is sort of the nature of how agriculture works these days, right? Exactly. All right. So um, we're going to take a quick break here. Uh, when we come back, as I say, we'll take your phone calls. Uh, we want to leave a lot of time to talk to uh, Alan Lorenzo uh, about uh, apotherapy, too. So that's coming up. Also, where's the worst place to get stung? You can probably imagine that. But. And we're back. <laughs> we're just talking here in the studio about where the worst place to get stung is. Al has his own theory about this. All right, we're happy to hear from you, too, 860-275-7266. Uh, love to talk to you about bees. Your que- Whatever question you have about bees, at this point we have so many guests, somebody will absolutely know the answer. Um, we're going to go back uh, now uh, to talk a little bit more beekeeping and also take some of your calls here uh, with Raleigh Hannon uh, and uh, John Weil. Uh, they're both big-time beekeepers. So, um, John Weil, I'm going to start with you. Uh, you know, you're talking about how just in the winter there's a loss of bees, uh, what with one thing or another. So that raises the question, um, I assume when you lose bees, you need more bees. So where do beekeepers get more bees from? Well, th- there are a number of ways to do that. The, b- the bigger beekeepers grow their own. And so uh, because we want stability of queens and we want stability of stock, so we will grow our own queens. And uh, if you bring them to a southern climate, you can split the hive, taking, uh, two hive, uh, taking one hive and making two, one strong hive and making it into uh, two hives by adding uh, uh, new queens. 
Um, and, you know, actually, uh, what I'm going to do here is uh, pop Raleigh back on hold for a second and, and take a call or two. Um, here's uh, Nancy in Westbrook. Hi, Nancy. You're on the Hi. air. Hi. How are you? Good. Um, I just had a question. I've just moved from northwestern New Jersey, Morris County, New Jersey, um, to Westbrook on the shoreline of Connecticut, and I brought my one hive with me. They overwintered in New Jersey, but they've just been brought up here. And I'm just wondering if there's anything in particular that I should know about beekeeping in Connecticut that's um, very different from beekeeping in New Jersey. Well, first of all, the Connecticut bees are less friendly uh, than anywhere else, just like the people. You know, they don't say hello. It's all that kind of stuff. So uh, I'm sure all of our guests have answers to that. But, John, I'll start with you. What does she need to know about Connecticut? Um, nothing really. Actually, I find that on the shoreline is some of the best beekeeping because for some reason when bees are near salt water, they tend not to uh, have as much trouble with mites, especially the varroa mites. So she might be a little better off. In New Jersey, there's tremendous blueberry pollination, and there's often a drift of uh, various sprays. So she's going to have a lot less trouble with that, I think, where she's living in Connecticut. Um, Raleigh, any other advice for a Connecticut beekeeper, a transplanted from New Jersey Connecticut beekeeper? Uh, just get them registered. It's not a um, call to be inspector for the state. It's not a, you don't have to pay to register. Just get her forms out, and that'll also help. If anybody's spraying in the area, they'll notify her so she doesn't get sprayed. All right. That's great advice as well. You know, um, Al Avitabile, I, I know one thing that a lot of people want to do is help out. They read about colony collapse disorder, and they read about just the sheer importance of the bees uh, to, to the ecosystem of Connecticut, to the, to the, to the economy uh, of Connecticut, or wherever they live. And, uh, you know, most people probably aren't ready to become beekeepers to undertake something that massive. But is there something the average person can do to make it life better for bees? Yes, one in particular right at this time of the year, dandelions are in bloom mm -hmm. all across Connecticut. And I plead with people, there's nothing wrong with having dandelions on your lawn. Leave them there. They're an important source of nectar and pollen for bees early in spring. When the flower is gone, you would never know they're on your lawn. So killing dandelions is not a good thing if you want to help the ecosystem and the honeybee le let your dandelions bloom and grow on your lawn. It's probably everything that we do to our lawns in, in pursuit of some completely artificial aesthetic ideal is antithetical to what the bee needs, right? Absolutely. I mean, they want clover. They want weeds, basically. They want things that flower. Right? Yeah. yeah, anything in flower. Um, all right, so um, we're talking about bees. I, I'm, I don't want to spend too much time in this segment because I want to leave a lot of time for apotherapy and bee stings too. But um, let me grab uh, one more call here. I'm just carefully trying to do this without knocking anybody off the line. Here's Barry in Ridgefield. Hi, Barry. Hi, how are you? Just fine. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. My question is um, I'm a, I'm a, I have been a beekeeper, and I'm an apotherapist. Uh, I knew Charlie Mraz. Uh, I know Ed Weiss, Ross Conrad, and anyway, they, um, they, I've had conversations wondering about how sugar feeding may adversely affect the immune system of the bees, along with uh, changing the size or enlarging the foundation to create larger bees and so on and so forth. So I don't even know about sugar feeding. Who can explain that to me? Well, um, uh, uh, sure, I'll be happy to. Uh, yes, uh, in the fall, if you think there's not enough honey in the hive, you can feed your bees uh, sugar, 
a sugar water mix, two sugars to one water in the spring to stimulate brood rearing. You can feed uh, one water, two um, no, two parts water, one part sugar, and uh, the it is sucrose, but uh, the bees will uh, break it down to fructose and glucose, and when they pick up um, nectar from flowers, they're picking up sucrose as well. So I don't think anyone has shown that feeding them sucrose uh, diluted in water is harmful to them. I mean, they don't get hyperactive. They, they can't sit still anymore or anything like that. It's, you know, uh, no, no, they keep doing what they do. I guess bees are kind of basically hyperactive. Barry, does that answer your question? Basically, it does. But I know we've been tampering with uh, beekeep, you know, with what the, the size of the foundation to create large, larger bees over the years. Ross Conrad is a pretty serious green bee, beekeeper up in Vermont, and he's trying to do some things along those lines to encourage the, the, the health of the original bees themselves. I think Alice got something about that, too. Uh, yeah. Uh, on cell size, at least some of the scientific studies that have already been made, uh, it indicates if you go to small cell size, uh, let the bees eventually build their own comb, and it will be a reduced size, the uh, varroa mite counts still seem to remain the same. All right, so we're going to take a quick break here, uh, and then we're going to come back. We're going to talk to you about uh, bees and your body. First of all, which places the bees can hurt the most, and then all the ways the bees can help. Alan Lorenzo, a traveling bee venom therapist and apotherapist, is going to talk a little bit more about that. understand why I have to let the bee sting me for venom therapy. Why can't I just take the venom in frozen daiquiri form? Today's show was produced by Jane Ashley, Betsy Kaplan, and me. Greg Hill tweets for us at WNPR Colin, and Katie Talarski is our executive producer. The part of Bill Curry was played by Jeff Goldblum. For show pages, articles, and photos of the Faith Middleton Show staff and their adult bumblebee costumes, visit WNPR.org. On tomorrow's show, in a world of Tony Soprano and Frank Underwood, have we forgotten what a villain is? And now, back to Colin. All right, we're back. We're going to talk about bees in your body, uh, and we're going to talk a lot with Alan Lorenzo about apotherapy. But first, uh, as part of his uh, ongoing uh, quest to be a challenger of the unknown, uh, former Colin McEnroe show producer Patrick Scahill went out uh, to visit with hive keepers, and guess what happened to him? Let's hear it. Up the nose is the worst single place to be stung. There is no place worse than up the nose, and I mean no place. You know, pick an area on the body, let your mind go wild. Up the nose is still the worst. That's Andrew Cote. We're about done here. And that's him getting stung up the nose. All right. Uh, oh, I thought we had Patrick getting stung, too. But we don't hear the sound of Patrick getting stung. I actually have that as a ringtone on my phone now. It's just Patrick getting stung. All right. So uh, before we uh, talk about all the good things that bees can do uh, for you, we should briefly touch upon the bad thing that they can do to you, which is sting you, uh, which also can be a good thing. But Michael Smith is a graduate student at Cornell University studying neurobiology and behavior. Uh, and, Michael Smith, you really wanted to know you must have really wanted to know this. Um, you really wanted to know where does it hurt the most. And there, there is a, a scale for rating pain, right? Yes, there is. And, I mean, you know, as a scientist, as a researcher, if something's not known, that's at the top of your list. you gotta, you got to figure those things out. Um, so you mentioned there is a scale for rating the painfulness of stings. And that's, there's a, the Schmidt 
testing pain index, and that was used for rating the painfulness of different types of insect stings. So, for example, you know, how does a wasp compare to a honeybee or a different type of ant or a bullet ant? And that was on a zero to four scale. Uh, what I was interested in, though, is if you take the single honeybee and you were to apply a standardized sting over the whole body, which would be the most painful place on the body? And that was done on a 1 to 10 scale, although the lowest score was a 2.3 and the highest score was a 9.0. All right, so and, and the, the, the research subject in this was you, right? You just sort of studied it on yourself? Yes, I did. Uh, who's better to tell me how painful something is than myself? Uh, well, it works for me. I mean, uh, I, you know, as long as it's not me, uh, I think it's fine that it can be you. Um, so you did this in how many different body locations? Uh, so there were 25 different body locations, and each body, every, uh, I did three rounds of the experiment. And and so you, <laughs> so you got stung 75 times intentionally. Um, Actually, I got stung more than 75 times. So, uh, so when it came down to controlling, you know, you can think, okay, how painful is this sting? I needed something kind of like an internal standard, something to base the painfulness of an experimental sting. So I actually used my forearms as uh, I would give myself a sting on the forearm and tell myself, okay, that's a five. Now uh, there was a randomizer so that I could actually get a random location. Okay, sting yourself uh, on the calf. And I could rate the painfulness of the sting to the calf relative to the forearm sting. Uh, so it was actually, I think, if, if the math is correct, I think it comes out to 190 stings. So it's time to open the envelope uh, and uh, find out the winner. So where's the worst place, uh, where are the worst places to be stung by a bee? So the very worst place is the nostril with a 9.0. Wow. Uh, And, you know, if you're you're looking at your nose, we're not talking about like on the outside of your nose, like where, you know, you might have like a a piercing. I'm talking about the inside of the nostril, like the place where a bull would be pierced. You're right in there. So you took, uh, picked up a bee with some forceps and stuck it up your nostril to find out how much it was going to hurt? Yeah, I didn't really have to stick the bee up there. I mean, you can just place her there, and, and her stinger will go right in there, no problem. All right. Uh, well, no problem might be the wrong way to put it, actually. Um, you know, no problem is right, because when you get stung in the nostril, it's it's a whole body experience. You start <laughs> teasing, your eyes, or your tears are just pouring out, you've got mucus coming out of your nose. Uh, your your entire body reacts. Your, your body knows that this is not a good thing. Uh, and, you know, when you think about it, you know, think of a colony of honeybees. Uh, you know, you've got tens of thousands of bees in there. And if they're trying to repel an intruder and each honeybee only has one shot at doing, of packing her punch, uh, she's going to aim for the nose. She's going to aim for your lips. She's going to aim for the eyes. She's going to aim for the places that are going to give the most bang for her buck. Hmm. I didn't really think of them as sort of thinking this whole thing out that way. Oh, so I sort of hate to ask, but what came in second? Uh, the second place was the upper lip with an 8.7. Mm. Um, all right. Well, so those are good places not to get stung. And then I'm looking at the um, at the report here. It says skull, middle toe tip, and upper arm would be the, like the best places to get stung, if there can be such things. Yeah, so skull, middle toe tip, and upper arm all received a scoring of a 2.3. So if, uh, you, if you can get them to choose... That's what you want him to choose. You know, Michael Smith, uh, first of all, you are the most courageous uh, scientific researcher uh, I think I've ever heard of. And I thank you so much for spending the time with us. But I want to leave a a lot of time here for uh, Alan Lorenzo, who's you're you're telling the happier story of bees. We know that a bee sting hurts, but a lot of people don't understand that bee venom can theoretically, according to the the dictates anyway of the world of of apotherapy, be of benefit to people. Explain how this works. Well, basically, um, 
B-venom has many properties um, and has antiviral, it's antibacterial, it's antifungal. It also has neurotransmitters in it, dopamine, serotonin, norepinephrine. Um, and being that it has the neurotransmitters in the venom, this allows it to travel over the body. So in a simplified example, if we had an MS person and they had a foot drag problem, you would sting in a lumbar area of the spine, you would sting in a local area where it's bothering them where the foot drag problem is, and you would sting neurological trigger points along the way that travel through the, the buttocks and the hips and the thighs and the calves. And with the neurotransmitters, the bee venom has the ability to travel up and down that neural pathway. If it's antiviral and there's a virus causing the MS, that's one way it's going to help. But other ways it's going to help is where the myelin fiber is worn away, the bee venom therapy stimulates an immune system healing response in that neural pathway and allows the myelin fiber to heal over time. It's not going to cure anybody their MS, but it can repair the damage that's been done. You know, getting ready for the show, I was just reading research, and there there is reviewed research on this now being done in in, in psychiatric psychiatric at, at scientific facilities, uh, and it seems to be a lot of research going on in Korea for some reason or other. Uh, but this isn't really accepted medical practice, right? There, there, in terms of sort of what you can get insurance reimbursements for, in terms of what your doctor will tell you is a good thing to do, this is really considered a, a pretty substantially alternative therapy? Absolutely, and, and bee venom therapy is, uh, is definitely outside the realm of medicine. It's not considered medicine at all. Um, on the other hand, um, uh, people do, I assume, seek this out. Um, how, how, first of all, how does the word spread? How does, if in fact my doctor is not going to tell me for my MS, for my arthritis, for whatever it is, boy, you should go find, uh, you know, an apotherapist because really the stuff that I've got is not working that well for you. Um, I mean, I assume that doesn't happen. So, so how do people find you? Well, you know, pretty much let's look at the way that I found bee venom therapy. I had problems with bursitis and tendonitis and herniated discs, and I'd been seeing orthopedic doctors for several years, and it wasn't helping me either. And eventually I saw a uh, news broadcast on local Fox News channel out in New York, and it was about bee venom therapy, and I looked it on the Internet, found some people in the area, and started learning how to do it, and found it was really um, medicine's best-kept secret. Um, that this can really help people in significant ways. Um, and, and so when this happens, I'm trying to picture this. You, well, first of all, in order to learn how to do this, you, you're not, you didn't start out as a beekeeper, right? But you had to become effectively a beekeeper. You got to get a bunch of bees. Not at all. No. Um, you can get bees shipped to you via mail order. There's no need to become a beekeeper. The fact that bees are the easy part. Yeah. The hard part is is learning how to actually do it effectively so it's going to, you know, treat your condition in a meaningful way. And, and so um, effectively doing that means understanding where you want to be stung by the bee, but also I would imagine getting the bee to sting somebody in a specific spot. I'm picturing somehow are there some kind of glass that's cupped over this area? or I mean, how do you Tweezers. do that? Tweezers. Tweezers. Really? And uh, if people are really interested, my website, bewelltherapy.com, has a YouTube video of me stinging my forearm for tendonitis, but it's all controlled with tweezers. You don't have to worry about bees flying all over your home. And it's all done in a very controlled manner. How did you learn how to do this? I mean, is there an apotherapy school you can go to? Or how did you figure out how to, how to do this? Uh, very eclectically. Um, at first, I learned from a couple of people in the area, Dr. Uh, Teo Chevrolet, who was supposed to be on today's show, but I guess uh, he declined. Um, Amber Rose, um, 
who also did AP therapy in the New York metropolitan area. And then later on, I went to um, the AAS and learned more things from um, Jim Higgins and Donald Downs in the uh, CMAC conferences that they offer. And in pulling all this information together in my own trial and error, um, I learned it the way I needed to learn it. I, I would imagine also when somebody comes to you, another thing that you have to be very careful about, I mean, some people are allergic to bees. Some people don't know how allergic they are to bees. Some people may be suddenly more allergic to bees than they were yesterday, right? Mm-hmm. So how do you Well, do they're not going to be more allergic to bees than they were yesterday. Um, everybody's allergic to bee venom. Okay, it's just that some people are more allergic than others. And that's the reason you get the redness and the swelling and the itching when you get stung by a bee. Um, the people that go into anaphylactic shock today, they can be tested for that in an allergist if they're concerned and never been stung for a bee before. But before, I would do bee venom therapy with anybody. We always do a testing. We have an EpiPen on hand. Mm-hmm. Um, even though um, somebody like myself has been stung by thousands of bees over the last 14 years, um, it's statistically possible that I could go into anaphylactic shock any time. Not very likely, but nevertheless, I have that EpiPen on hand because if I didn't, I'd be a goner. Um, if you have questions about this, our number is 860-275-7266. When we talk about apitherapy, I assume that's not synonymous with bee venom therapy. The apitherapy encompasses a, a whole range of things that bee-related products and, and byproducts can, can do for you. Well, bee venom therapy is really a subset of apitherapy. Yeah. You also have products of the hive like propolis and, and the bee pollen that was mentioned before and royal jelly. And all these can be used to treat various health conditions like bee pollen can help lower cholesterol and blood pressure. Propolis has antiviral and antibacterial properties. It can be used to get rid of the common cold if used early on. Um, Royal jelly can help people with insomnia and uh, mood disorders and a whole range of other issues, including uh, menopause for women and things like that. Um, Let me grab a call here from, uh, because this comes up all the time, Sharon in Rocky Hill. Hi, Sharon. Hi. What's on on your mind? Oh, well, I'm going along with what you're speaking of now. Um, Honey is supposed to be beneficial for um, allergies and other ailments and and just for health benefits. But they talk about eating local honey, and I hear about the bees traveling from hive to hive to hive and locations. How close to home should local honey be for you to have local honey? Um, That's kind of like a myth. Any honey um, that you pick up around here that's raw and pasteurized can help you with the condition. It doesn't have to come from the beehive uh, around the corner. Um, I have found some different benefits with different parts of the world, propolis that comes from different parts of the world, and honey. So that could make a particular difference. But anything out of North America should really help you with what you need. Um, you know, Al Avitabula, you're sitting here listening to all this. You sort of study the other end. You study the, the lives of the, uh, of, of the bees themselves. Is this something that people on, on your end, people in ecology and entomology are, are interested in, or is it sort of, does it exist off kind of by itself? No. Uh, well, I think uh, m- there are many beekeepers, maybe not all of them, that certainly are interested in apitherapy. I just would mention that uh, Alan probably realizes one of the early uh, it practi- practitioners was Charles Moraz in Middlebury, Vermont. And uh, just quickly, he had uh, um, rheumatoid arthritis as a child, and he had read Dr. Beck's book on bee venom therapy, and he went to his bee yard one day just because he was in pain every day, and he just got some, rolled up his pants, got five or six bees to sting one knee and then the other, 
and he woke up the next morning and he says, I'm dreaming because he was pain free. Um, yeah, there is sort of like a holy uh, trinity of, of this of the history of apotherapy that I, at least I was reading about. The Austrian physician Philip Turk, uh, his uh, his book, report about a peculiar connection between bee stings and rheumatism. And then Dr. Beck, the uh, Hungarian uh, scientist whom you mentioned, who moved to America after World War One, and then Charles Moraz. Those are the three people that that one reads about. I think a the lot real in, pioneers, yeah, in, in the history of apotherapy. Um, obviously, uh, we're almost out of time, uh, Alan Lorenzo. Um, is, so you mentioned a few things. Is is there, uh, for example, I'm reading, a, I read some scientific research about, about MS and, and apotherapy. Are there specific conditions that seem to rise to the top in terms of, of uh, effective apotherapy treatment? Well, ones that certainly involve rheumatism, uh, neurological disorders, it can help many of that. Um, if you have cancer and it's located close to the surface of the skin, such as skin cancer or breast cancer and it's first stage, and you sting it with bees, the bee venom can kill the cancer cells. And this is any animal venom can do that. But looking at practicality, you're not going to hold a snake to your breast. Um, So you can use bees. And this has been done. And uh, I've used it to get rid of skin cancer. Uh, Donald Downs out in Wellington, Ohio, has used it to get rid of breast cancer. In women, when it started out as a lump at a golf ball, and after stinging the area for a month, it just went away because the bee venom goes in and it kills the cancer cells, all your other cells regenerate from your own DNA. The cancer has no DNA, so it disappears. You probably want to do this in conjunction with an actual oncologist slash dermatologist, the appropriate medical personnel. Don't just trust the bees uh, to fix you. Uh, They may be great, but... uh but you probably want to get regular medical treatment as well. Hey, listen, we're uh, out of time here. We especially want to thank Jane Ashley, our intern, who put this show together. Uh, We'll be back tomorrow with a show about villains. Do people even understand what a villain is anymore? Thanks for tuning in today. Hey, B, you need a ride? I got plenty of your friends in here already. You have to sting me first? Well, where are you going to sting me? You want to sting me there? Nuh-uh. See ya, B. Uh, uh.